episode 992, our favorite episodes, The Redemption of George Lucas. Are you sure this is 92? News was 89. Yep, then Dune the film. Oh, and then Children of Dune. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology up warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeVono. We're back. Ben, tonight we're featuring one of your episodes that I was just thoroughly impressed by. And over the years, it's really stuck with me. The funny thing about all this is that the last time I brought this episode up with you, you didn't remember it existing. Yeah, I, I do forget a lot. I think I I think I, I unload my thoughts and then I move on to the whatever the next thing is. I think that's uh, genuinely, I'm not even joking that much. I think that happens to me a lot with the podcast. Like I just, I just forget. Like all something I'm obsessed about, mm-hmm. and I'll obsess about it, and I'll put thoughts together, and we'll do an episode, and then I move on. Well, I don't want because you're about to dive into it, so I don't want to tell you exactly what you talked about. But let me just read the description I wrote right. based on it. It said, "Is George Lucas just misunderstood?" Ben gives us an alternate reading of Lucas's career, and we start to see that even though he was extremely successful, he was not successful in the ways that he wanted to be. Oh, is this where I talk about? Well, okay, yeah. So, yeah. So this is a great episode. I like I said, I'm sure it's great. It, it came out on. We released this on May 24th, 2016. It's episode 469, the Redemption of George Lucas. Ben, give us some time travel music. Episode 469, the Redemption of George Lucas. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiBono, and we are back. Back, everybody. And I had mentioned on the news episode, I don't know what Ben's going to say on this episode. The title was the biggest hint I got to what this topic is going to be about. So, Ben, the floor is yours. Yeah, I'm actually excited about this. I would say, and like I said in the news episode, I'm not trying to keep this mysterious. I just... I'm not good at summarizing things. Like I start summarizing, I talk for 20 minutes and that's my summary. Uh, But I would say if this episode is closest to anything we've done in the past, it's probably closest to the alternate reading episodes we've done of Sherlock and another one that I can't remember. Uh, But we did a few. Hamlet. Yeah, there we go. Two Sherlock and one Hamlet alternate readings. In other words... Uh, what I'm doing or uh, going to try to do in this episode is put together the pieces of George Lucas's life in a way that casts him in a very different light, I think, than he has ever been cast before. Uh, so whether you love the guy or hate him, uh, I think that what I, uh, the case I'm going to try and make, if you're convinced by it, is going to put him in a different light inside of your mind. Uh, you know, I you actually were saying in the news episode you didn't know what the thesis was for this episode. And I actually wrote that out. I wrote out my thesis for this episode okay. in two points. Uh, so in this episode, I'm going to try and prove or show or argue that George Lucas is a genius, but not in the way that he wanted to be. And he's wildly successful, but he failed in the areas where he wanted most to achieve. And I'm going to argue that throughout his career, there's a constant pull between him pursuing what he wants to do, but maybe isn't good at, and what he is good at, 
but maybe doesn't want to do. Oh, interesting. All right. Okay. So, so you're just going to walk us through. So can I just sit back and relax? Yeah, essentially. Right. So I'll, I'll kind of give you the origins of how this episode came to me. I'm going to you know, set the stage for what we've talked about with George Lucas so far. Um, and then we're just going to walk through his career. I love it. From film school to, to just a couple months ago. That's great. Um, and so none of this, I should say, I'm not going to make the argument that the prequels are good movies or anything like that. That's not what this is. It's not like I'm sitting there, you know, taking notes during Phantom Menace and all of a sudden it clicked why <laughs> this is the greatest movie ever made. No, um, everything that we've said about George Lucas, I stick to with my opinions about him. I, I, I think the prequels are terrible movies. I, I think there's a lot of criticism to go against him. This is more that this is not the full picture. Uh, or that's not the full picture, and that there's another side to him that if we're going to understand this guy, who, whatever we think about him, is important. If you're listening to the show, odds are George Lucas has played an important role in your life. It just has. I mean, think well, we, all, we all grew up on Star Wars, or, you know, for those of you who are a little older, you, Star Wars was a major force in your youth, or something like that. Uh, and so George Lucas matters. And we've all felt betrayed by him. We've felt angry at him. We hate him. We feel defensive about him. But that's not the whole picture. Okay, so the way this episode came about is, uh, you know, as I've been watching more foreign films and everything, especially Kurosawa, I've kind of been, it's kind of cool because it's no secret or anything that George Lucas uh, borrowed heavily from Kurosawa, uh, Kurosawa, Akira Kurosawa, of course, the great Japanese samurai director of Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and all that good stuff. Um, so I was watching a movie by Kurosawa about a month ago that he made in the early 80s called Kagamusha. And what's kind of fun about this movie is that George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, of course, the director of Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, uh, he and Georgie were friends back in the day, probably still are, but who knows. Um, they actually were executive producers on this movie. Uh, Kurosawa was having trouble getting funded for it. He wanted to make this sweeping three-hour samurai epic uh and he, he couldn't secure funding for it and coppola and, and lucas stepped in and helped him and so uh there if you watch the movie at the end credits their names appear in japanese in the end credits which is kind of cool uh coppola and kurosawa also filmed a bunch of uh scotch commercials like to help fund uh where they used footage of of coppola visiting the set and then they're like looking over the script and they're drinking scotch and everything and so there's a whole bunch of scotch commercials that aired in the in the 80s about this they used to do funding you can see where you and i are, are in different mindsets because when you said scotch i was like scotch tape <laughs> yes they're the script a- got ripped in part they're making tons of scotch tape commercials <laughs> Right, Scotch, Scotch whiskey. Okay. Um, but the the cool part is that on the Criterion DVD, uh, there's a special feature where it's 15 minutes or something, and it's Coppola and, and Lucas talking about uh, oh, Kurosawa. That is cool. And it's them not way back then, but them today. And I'm watching this special feature, because how are you not going to watch George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola yeah. talk about samurai movies? I'm watching the special feature... And I get about halfway through it, and it clicks for me. I'm seeing this whole other side to George Lucas that I've never seen before in the sense that... And what I mean by that is that there's always this sense, I think, that George Lucas 
just doesn't get it. He wouldn't know a good story if it bit him in the face. Yeah, he got lucky with the first Star Wars, but he wasn't hardly involved in Empire Strikes Back, and then he comes back for the prequels, and it's a disaster. And so the guy, yeah, he's found success, but you know his storytelling skills are just not there. But I'm listening to him, and I'm listening to him talk Coher- not only coherently, but very I- incisively uh, about not only Kurosawa, but classic film. And I'm realizing this is a guy who he might not be able to do it, but he gets it. And so what does that mean? Like that, I'd never really thought of him that way. Uh, and pulling on that thread and thinking about that and kind of going back through his career uh, is this episode. So the story so far, of course, we already know George Lucas prequels, they suck. Um, The other thing I wanted to touch on in terms of setting up our opinion of him so far is we've done the episode where we talked about the Gary Kurtz interview, uh, Gary Kurtz, the producer of the first two Mm -hmm. Star Wars, the interview he did with IGN like 15 years ago or something like that. Long interview, and he's talking about his relationship with George Lucas. And essentially, when we talked about that, um, in our Star Wars episode, and I don't remember what episode that is, but I'll I see you it. figuring it out. So we will have that episode shortly. Um, it's essentially Kurtz talking about what went wrong with Lucas in his career. And Kurtz makes the argument in there, among many other things, that at some point Lucas got sick of dealing with story and just wanted to sell toys and merchandise and that you didn't need all of this you know, character and storytelling stuff. You could get really successful just by selling um merchandise and it's not Kurtz isn't bitter in the interview I don't think but he he does look at Lucas as somebody who lost his way and I think that that's really uh the motivator you know the thing that we kind of think about with Lucas is somebody who uh, uh to quote an episode title we another episode title we did a sci-fi genius gone bad you know he's a guy who had it he created Star Wars it was amazing and then he just lost it um and to me, that's a very compelling take on Lucas, and it's true to a certain extent, but it's not the whole truth. And so this episode isn't me saying I don't agree with what we've said about Lucas in the past. Um, I think that the Kurtz interview still has a lot of validity to it, as do other criticisms, but there is more to the story. All right. If you did want to check out that early conversation that Ben and I had, it's episode 43, simply titled Star Wars. Yeah, that was our, our practice run back in the day before that, we started uh, podcasting. That is the very first podcast episode that you and I ever recorded together. So audio is not great, but the content is awesome. Right, right. So we, we talk about the Kurtz interview in there. And so that's, uh, we'll get back to that. Or you can go check that out. Anyway, to put George Lucas in context, I think we have to kind of put ourselves into the mindset of what the what it was like to be a movie fan in the 60s and we're so used to netflix and instant availability today uh but of course we know that that's not always been there but then again you know people our age man we've never we've lived our whole lives with at least vhs like i can never remember not having videos yeah we had access to anything we wanted to see right so you go back to the 60s and there's you know, I don't know if there was even cable back then. I don't think so. And and so you have your networks, and then you have your local cinema. And uh, as Lucas says in the interview that he does on the Kagamusha DVD, um, our local cinema didn't play much beyond uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and The Blob. And so you get you know you'll get these repetitive movies or you get new releases, but you're not seeing anything. So 
like I've been getting into foreign films and stuff. Well, th- that's the benefit of living at the time that we do. If I'm living in the 60s, uh, there's really no way for me to do that except for one, and that's to go to film school. Oh, okay. Which is what George Lucas does. He goes to USC's film school. And there, Lucas discovers cinema. So when people talk about the influences on Star Wars, which we'll get more into in a little bit, uh, they they throw out things like the Hero's Tale uh, with Joseph Campbell. They throw out World War II dogfighting reels. They throw out things like Flash Gordon. And then they'll throw in, um, you know, Kurosawa, too. And almost really have to divide the influences that Lucas brought into Star Wars between younger Lucas, what he grew up on, which is certainly influential in Star Wars, and then what he discovers as a man who is pursuing the career of being a film director and wanting to do this for a living. And that's stuff like Kurosawa. It's stuff like silent films. It's stuff like Orson Welles and John Ford movies and and you know the great cinema that you just didn't have access to in 99% of the cases, unless you're going to film school or you're living next to some theater that's going to show all this stuff. Um, and so Lucas finds this stuff, and it clicks with him big time. Uh, John Milius, who is the uh, screenwriter of Apocalypse Now and a bunch of other stuff, he has a very impressive resume, uh, is the one who first introduced Lucas to Kurosawa. And they watch Seven Samurai together, and they watch Rashomon, they watch Hidden Fortress. And, you know, this is an exciting time because you discover this brilliant director, and he's still working out there, and they're still doing stuff, and Orson Welles is still alive. And there's all this great stuff. Uh, that's going on. And at that same time, Lucas makes friends with John Milius, who I already mentioned. He makes friends with Steven Spielberg. He makes friends with uh, Roger Zemeckis, who, of course, oh, no. back to the Robert. future. Robert, Robert Zemeckis. Ro- Ro- well, yeah, he did Roger Bob. Rabbit, though. Bob Z. Yeah, Bob Z. Um, you know, he's got to go on to do Back to the Future and everything. So you have, like, this atmosphere of these budding filmmakers who are all at this place. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of other names who have impressive resumes, but I won't mention because, you know, nobody knows who they are, but they're like film editors and stuff. And so people who are, are ready to be the next generation of filmmakers, of great filmmakers uh, here at USC Film School, and they're studying the, the classics and, and they're watching this stuff and they're encountering it for the first time and they're realizing what great cinema is and means and everything. And so you have Lucas taking on this idealistic picture of cinema um, and finding uh, finding a love that continues to today. I mean, this isn't something where he graduates film school and then, oh, yeah, I remember when we used to watch Kurosawa. No, it's like he still loves this stuff today. And so it's made a lasting impression. After film school, he interns for Francis Ford Coppola, who was kind of, you know, oh, a few years older cool. than him. Um, he's the guy who graduated from film school and made it. So in film school, all of these young guys are idealizing Francis Ford Coppola. He's not the Francis Ford Coppola who's made The Godfather yet or anything. That's still a few years down the line. Uh, but he interns with Francis Ford Coppola on one of his uh, pictures of the late 60s. The two become friends. They, uh, I think Lucas was like an assistant camera operator or something like that. But they, they eventually uh, form a partnership together. And they have a goal of, among pursuing their own careers, though, but to 
help great cinema be made. Uh, one of the interesting things that comes out of that interview that they do on the Kagamusha DVD is that, and I, I haven't been able to find references to anywhere this anywhere else, so I don't know more details on it, but apparently Orson Welles was kind of in the same boat that Kurosawa was, where he was trying to make movies and having trouble getting funding, and so they were trying to help him, and they were trying to get him funded, and they failed at the time because... They they weren't George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola right. at the time, you know. So they they tried to get Orson Welles funded, but there's this desire that you see at the beginning in in the early seventies, late sixties, where Lucas and Coppola want to make great cinema. They want to be part of this grand cinematic tradition that they were steeped in in film school and now have now come to love and are now working to be part of themselves. And they want to help people like Orson Welles or uh, Kurosawa to do all of this great stuff. So the 70s happen. Of course, Coppola makes it. You know, he makes The Godfather. He makes The Godfather Part 2. He makes uh, Apocalypse Now. I mean, he has one of the best decades that a director has ever had in cinema, period. I mean, those are three of the greatest movies ever made. And Lucas, you know, he makes a couple short, uh, uh, smaller movies, like THX and uh, American Graffiti. And then he makes Star Wars. And Star Wars... For a second, we need to kind of forget everything that we know about Star Wars and think about it through the eyes of young George Lucas making this in the mid-70s. Okay, because Star Wars is su- it's its own beast right now. We're going to get into that and, and why that matters and why that's such an important part of this whole conversation. But George Lucas walking into Star Wars is trying to do something very different than what it eventually became. I believe, and this is where we get into a little bit of conjecture, but I'm going to make the case. I believe that he's trying to make a film that is part of that grand cinematic tradition. We think of Star Wars as kind of along with Jaws as, as the launching of modern cinematic pop culture. And it very much is. Uh, And I'm not saying that's a good thing, bad thing, indifferent, but that's not what That wasn't the goal when Lucas tried to do that. He is essentially making samurais in space at the time. But it's more than that. So you see so many different influences. Yes, the Flash Gordon serials. Yes, the World War II dogfighting. But much more than that, I think you see the influences of the loves he developed in film school and is working as a young director being pulled in here. So Star Wars has a strong silent film aesthetic. And that's something John Williams has talked about a number of times that he tried to score the movie as though it was a silent movie. And you could watch Star Wars without the dialogue and get the whole story, at least with the originals. I mean, that's how effective it is in that way. And so you go back and watch the silent movies from the twenties and, you know, Charlie Chaplin and all this, and you get a similar aesthetic to some of what you're seeing in star Wars, Uh, a strong sense of visual storytelling, um, a strong sense of being able to tell your story in other ways uh, besides dialogue and and whatnot. And uh, not to get our head of ourselves, but perhaps Star Wars would have been more successful in the way that Lucas wanted it to be if it was a silent film. Uh, You see the influence of Westerns, you know, John Ford and everything. Um, I think even later, though this would be a little bit more contemporary to him, but even some of the Clint Eastwood uh, Westerns, especially the Bounty Hunters and uh, Han Solo is very much a man with no name figure from, you know, uh, Eastwood's movies. Um, you see Lawrence of Arabia. We've talked about that, and uh, there's, you know, especially we get into Attack of the Clones, and there's a 
direct shots that are shot literally on the same place with the same camera angles as Lawrence of Arabia That's was. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, the shot of Mos Eisley's, when they first see Mos Eisley's, is a direct callback to Lawrence of Arabia. And so there, there's a ton of stuff there. And, of course, you see Kurosawa, who is hands down the biggest influence on Star Wars. And normally when people say this, it's essentially, oh, Jedi are kind of like samurai. Yeah, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It goes into the visual style uh, that Kurosawa used both in his cinematography and his editing. You know, all those famous wipes in Star Wars, the yeah. wipe edits, those are right out of Hidden Fortress. That's uh, okay. which is one of Kurosawa's movies. So he, those are directly taken from Kurosawa. And even movies like Force Awakens now are doing that thinking that they're just reflecting back on the original trilogy, but they're actually right. reflecting back on Kurosawa. Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, the way that Kurosawa shot action. I mean, you don't notice it so much as if you just watch it today because it's so old, but Seven Samurai revolutionized how action scenes are shot. And Lucas used that in, in these movies. Um, if you go back to uh, Japanese cinema, there's essentially two divisions of if you're doing a, a modern setting movie it's called one thing and i don't have the japanese word for that but if you're doing a period piece those are called uh, i gotta get it right jedi jedi geki jedi geki movies oh okay, okay so you hear right there jedi that's where he gets the name from okay compare darth vader's helmet to a shogun helmet i mean they look exactly the same if you just google that a little bit darth vader is a evil samurai warrior. He is, is the villain character from a samurai movie. He, he walked right out of it and then just kind of went through a little sci-fi makeover, but it's exactly the same. Um, most famously, Hidden Fortress has plot points that are very, very similar, both to A New Hope and to The Phantom Menace, and that it there are two peasants who find themselves kind of just wandering around um they are bickering quite a bit they get separated they both get kidnapped independently is this plot starting to sound familiar yes it's the droids at the beginning of a new hope mm -hmm. they wind up stumbling into a princess who they have to rescue and go along in this adventure and so what if you watch hidden fortress you're essentially you see large plot points from a new hope and then much more with kind of um the rescuing amidala storyline from phantom menace in there as well and so Kurosawa is just huge for A New Hope. But you also see this in the casting choices. So Alec Guinness, if you only think of Obi-Wan Kenobi when you think of Alec Guinness, you're seeing the tip of the tip of the iceberg. You know, when you watch, and it's even go back further to like Lawrence of Arabia, he's in that, Bridge on the River Kwai, but this is a guy who was a major actor. And uh, I don't think he liked that he became known by later generations as only being a part of Star Wars. Like, you know, there's so many Alec Guinness performances back there, and he's a great actor. It's a, I was watching David Lean's adaptation of Great Expectations from the late 30s, and he's like running around as a 20 year old guy there. It's it's bizarre. I see Alec Guinness <laughs> is like this young guy, um, and, and so Alec Guinness is this great actor, and he's again somebody who Lucas would have encountered probably both from his boyhood, seen movies like Bridge on the River Kwai, and then later when he goes to film school and so he's bringing people in but then maybe the more significant one is the acting uh, attempt that lucas got turned down on but that he pushed hard for which was to get toshiro mifune as darth vader now toshiro mifune is not a household name of course unless you are into japanese cinema he starred in 
17 out of 30 uh, Kurosawa movies. Mm. He's one of the most prolific, possibly the most prolific uh, Japanese actor of all time. And Lucas really wanted him for uh, Star Wars. And he tried to get him both for Darth Vader and for Obi-Wan Kenobi. It didn't work, um, but he tried to. And so, again, this is where you think about all that. Forget everything you know you think of when you think of Star Wars and just look at it from that perspective as a movie he's trying to get made. And this is going to be him stepping into the great cinematic tradition. He's going to bring the samurai movie uh, into the West. He's going to allow that experience that he was only able to get in film school to be experienced by everyone just going down to the local cineplex. And that's what he's trying to do there. And does he succeed? Of course, Star Wars is very successful. Um but it's also a failure from a certain perspective. And I don't mean uh, criticizing the plot or anything like that, but it's successful. Let's look at its successes for a second. Of course, it's wildly successful with the popular audience, but is it successful in the way that Lucas wanted it to be with the popular audience? Did people go to star Wars and experience the samurai movie? Not really. You know, it, it launched its own new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it succeeds because he's able to help Kurosawa. I mean, he, essentially, the way that he was able to get Kagamusha funded wasn't because 20th Century Fox was like, oh, yeah, I heard about that Kurosawa guy. We, he, we can make some money. It's because George Lucas had just made them hundreds of millions of dollars and said, do me a, a solid here and fund this guy. And so they essentially said, okay, we're going to take a loss, but George Lucas wants us to, so okay. we're going to do it. Uh, and it succeeds in making Lucas very rich thanks to merchandising rights. More on that in a minute. Wait. So, Star Wars does because oh, of his yeah. famous merchandising deal. I where, knew about that, but I thought you were saying this new Kurosawa film. Oh, no, no, that, that, no, no. I'm talking about the success of A New Hole. Right. But from the perspective of that young director out of film school establishing himself, trying to make the movie I just described, Star Wars failed in very many ways. First of all, George Lucas personally failed to manage the stress of being a director. Part of the reason, and it's never fully been confirmed, but part of the reason that he didn't direct the next two is because he suffered severe health problems, even heart problems on uh, the set of A New Hope due to stress. Hmm. Um, you know, he, he was having major issues. That is documented, but he's never come out and directly connected the pieces. He said it was too much work. You read between the lines. Um, but this is like going to be his movie and he barely makes it through the shoot physically. Hmm. Uh, so there's a failure there. Not And it, again, this is not criticisms of Star Wars. This is just looking at it from the perspective of him at the time with what he was trying to accomplish. It failed to garner that more highbrow praise of being, and I don't mean that in a snooty way, but in the sense of that him wanting to be part of this great cinematic tradition, wanting to bring that home. You know, the movie got praised for its effects and its action and the thrill ride and everything we love about it, but it didn't get that praise that, say, Coppola was getting. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't get elevated to that level uh, or that Spielberg would get down the road or anything like that. So it's, he's getting praised but not the way that he want, he was intending to be. He failed to get the respect of his cast and crew. I mean, there's the famous quote from Harrison Ford, and I'll censor it appropriately, where he says, you can type this stuff, George, but you can't say it. Essentially just slamming his dialogue. Oh, okay. uh, 
and the sense of that he's trying to great make this great movie, and even his actors aren't taking it seriously. And maybe the most uh, painful one is Alec Guinness. According to there's about four or five different versions of the story as to why Alec Guinness got killed off in the first one but at least one of them is that according to alec guinness at one point in his life said he got so sick of the horrible dialogue that he made george change the script because originally obi-wan did not die in star wars yeah i've heard that but i i just figured they decide for story reasons that that was the right move and that's one of the versions so who knows if it's true or not but what is true is that Alec Guinness had a very mixed relationship with star wars famously once he was asked for an autograph um by a young fan who told him that he'd watched Star Wars 30 times and Alec Guinness's response was why in the world would you do that <laughs> and oh, no. the kid kept begging and he said I'll give you an autograph if you promise not to watch Star Wars anymore wow. <laughs> just like the worst response but Alec Guinness he's this great actor and all of a sudden he's nobody knows him for that nobody knows him for his esteemed career he's just this weird space wizard you know and so you can see it from his perspective mm-hmm. that he has been this great force, and then he's kind of reduced to just a pop culture figure. Uh, but maybe most importantly, it fails to be seen by audiences the way Lucas saw it. Like I mentioned a minute ago, that it succeeds as the launching of a pop culture phenomenon, but that's not what Lucas was going for. It doesn't get audiences connected to cinema in the way that Lucas connected with cinema at film school, even though all those elements were there. And this here, where we go back to the thesis statement, where I said that George Lucas is wildly successful, but not where he wanted to be. And we see the seeds of this really being planted here. He's set for life at this point financially because his genius with the marketing, Mm -hmm. not his genius as a filmmaker. His genius as a filmmaker was successful, but even there, not in the way that he intended to be. He's successful as launching pop culture, not connecting people to what he loved. So then you move on to Empire Star. Go ahead. I do want to ask a quick question. So I know everybody knows that he signed this great contract. Maybe you're, are you going to talk about this with the merchandising, or is that I just no? That's it right there. Yeah. So just in case you don't know, he he uh, signed over a lot of rights to what the movie made as long as he had the rights to how much the toys and the shirts. Because toys were nothing back then. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, we know now Star Wars toys are huge in the collectibles area. Yeah. So he's a billionaire just based on the merchandise <laughs> right. sales. Okay, here's something I've been wondering, though. He, we know that George Lucas had the rights, and he was the one that sold Star Wars to Disney. But how did he have the rights over the studio? Because nowadays, uh, just because... Uh, uh, screenwriter comes in and, and creates this awesome idea doesn't mean they own that franchise. Uh, I'm not sure what all the legal parts of it. I know that for a while, there's still something with the rights for A New Hope where that movie doesn't quite have it. But no, he had his... I mean, Lucasfilm essentially owned the rights to Star Wars. Okay, so 20th Century Fox. They're the distributor, okay. not the student. And that's probably... I'll start making mistakes if I go much farther than that. But essentially, Lucasfilm is his company. They own the intellectual rights to Star Wars. They don't necessarily own the distribution rights. They funded the making of the movie and then got 20th Century Fox to distribute it, possibly. Yeah. Okay. But more importantly, in terms of the deal with Disney, is that uh, 
Lucasfilm was able to sell the intellectual rights to Darth Vader okay. to the Star Wars universe. Okay, essentially, okay. that's what Disney bought. I mean, I think they're they're getting distribution rights along with it and everything, so they'll be able to do their box sets and whatnot. So down Disney the road. doesn't necessarily own New Hope. You're saying. Yeah, there's something funny with that, and I don't remember what it was, and maybe it got cleared up, but I remember reading about that a few years ago when this deal first went down. Okay. Um, but, yeah, essentially, the real value for Disney, though, isn't the original trilogy. I mean, they'll re-release that, and they'll make money off of it, but it's the ability to make Star Wars movies. Okay, gotcha. All right, pick it back up. All right, so Empire Strikes Back comes out, and Lucas has uh, retired from being a director at this point. And this is maybe the epitome of George Lucas's two sides, his genius and his failures, warring with each other because this movie is incredibly successful. Not as financially successful as Star Wars, but critically successful. A huge hit with the fans. And it's the one he's the least involved with, mm. right? George Lucas is famous for not getting along with Irvin Kershner, who was the director. Uh, you know, he went into deep depression during this time, and he's not very involved in the creative process. And even more than that, and this is not at all a criticism of Empire Strikes Back, because it, I love that movie. But from it, from the perspective of a guy who is trying to do the Kurosawa samurai movie and bring all that there, a lot of that stuff is gone in Empire Strikes Back. Now, it, you still have Jedi, you still have the Force, you still have, you know, elements of that, but it's there's nowhere near the same extent of all of those influences coming together mm. into that movie, arguably for the better, because it turned out to be pretty much a perfect movie. But from the perspective of George Lucas with what he was trying to accomplish, Star Wars is all of a sudden becoming its own thing, it's moving away from him. He's out of the loop creatively. Not completely. That's overstating the case, but you get what I'm saying. And it's not what he was trying to do. So Return of the Jedi comes. He's directing by proxy. I mean, there's stories of him being on the phone with Richard Marquand every night telling him what to do. Mm-hmm. And so you see this sense there, and this is going to be important when we get to the special editions, of George Lucas trying to take back that director control, trying to find a way to make this work so that he can still be the great director that he wants to be. And he's not quite able to do it. I mean, the films, of course, is successful at Star Wars, but it's not anywhere near as successful uh, critically as Empire Strikes Back was or among the fans. He gets grief for the Ewoks. Okay, so now we're done with Star Wars. The original trilogy has happened. Star Wars has become its own entity at this thing. Any thoughts of it being part of the samurai tradition are are long behind him. It's its own entity. Uh According to the Kurtz interview in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi is when marketing Lucas comes fully into control. And he, you know, that's the side of Lucas's personality that it's just kind of forget story and uh, let's just make money here. And I think that where I see this rounding things out a little bit in terms of who Lucas is, is that in the Kurtz interview, it almost sounds like George just got a little greedy. That might be true, but I think George also got very frustrated because what he tried to do failed Mm -hmm. and it succeeded, but not in the way he wanted it to. And there's a sense of that. I tried to do this. I failed. So I'm going to go do this instead. Forget story. Forget that. You can almost, and this is conjecture, of course, but you can almost sense how there could be so much frustration going on with him. 
at so, that point. Just to make sure I understand. So you're saying, and again, conjecture, that he tried to do this great thing. It didn't work. So he decided, might as well just cash in. Right. Because something else worked. It worked as launching its own pop culture entity. Mm-hmm. So why not do what Kurt's talked about, where you jettison story and characters in favor of uh, Ewoks for toys mm-hmm. and, and being able to write the script around merchandising and all of this okay. stuff. Uh, so essentially saying that maybe it's not quite as cynical as Kurtz made it out to be. Maybe what Kurtz is describing is more tragic Mm -hmm. in that sense. Okay, so now we get the long middle period between uh, Return of the Jedi and the special editions. What happens here? Um, Well, Lucas's friends from film school go on to do exactly what he wanted to do, Uh. which is that Coppola, of course, had already done it in the 70s, but he made The Godfather. He made Apocalypse Now. And yeah, you know, sure, he gets The Godfather 3 in this period, but who cares? He's Francis Ford Coppola. He made three of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Um, Spielberg goes on to become maybe the biggest director in the world during this part, uh, during this time. Zemeckis goes on. He gets this wild success both with uh, Back to the Future and then goes on to win Academy Awards with Forrest Gump. And, you know, and so there's this sense of that Lucas then has this one film. I mean, yeah, he has American Graffiti and those couple others, but from when he really tried to step out into his career and launch it, he has this one film he directed. And in a sense, yeah, he's the biggest of them all. He made the most money. He's he's the most successful franchise, but he's not taking on that next generation of cinema in the way that Spielberg and Zemeckis and Coppola did. He's not uh, taking, fulfilling that dream that goes back to film school. And so we get to the uh, special editions, and I want to suggest that, yes, the special editions were done in an attempt to raise money for the prequels, but I think it's not outside the realm of possibility to suggest that they were also done in a way for him to put his stamp back on Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and try and get some of that creative control. Yeah, I can do this, too. See, guys, I, I you know, I... The, the thing got a little out of control from where I wanted it to be. I'm going to bring it back, in, and it falls flat on its face. Mm. So this is special editions are, are hated, criticized. <laughs> and this would also explain why does the non-special edition original trilogy just disappear at this point? I think that Lucas has a very complicated relationship with especially Empire Strikes Back, um, and that there's a sense of that it's so successful and people love it so much. Why doesn't he release it? Well... It wasn't his movie in a very real sense. And that, again, is overstating the case, but it's not his movie. Okay, the prequels come, and Lucas steps back into the director. Uh, he takes the reins back. Now, initially, he did try and get Spielberg and Zabekas and a couple other people to direct the prequels. Oh, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. They turned him down. Why do you think they did? They told him it was just it was too much to try and compete with the legacy of the original trilogy. Yeah, they were probably right. Uh, but they turned him down. So he's going to take on um, the reins. And remind me, did he direct all three? He did. Okay. And I think that you could make the argument that he, you know, if Return of the Jedi is his way of being able to try and direct without directing, now technology in the late 90s allows him to kind of do that. He's able to do a lot more with green screens, and it goes to maybe explain why those movies are so green screen CGI heavy. We'll film in the studio as much as humanly possible, and we don't have to go all around the world, and I don't have to, I can cut a lot of the stress out. I think it's part of what he's trying to do there. The Phantom Menace, though, is really interesting when we look at um, George Lucas as 
the Kurosawa protege that he has been trying to be. The Phantom Menace is a terrible movie, but you see a return to kind of that amalgamation of influences that we saw with A New Hope. Just some of the things. There there are shots in The Phantom Menace that are directly out of Seven Samurai, uh, notably when the clone, or not the clone army, the uh, battle droid army kind of comes over the hill and you see the tanks emerging. It is a direct shot from Seven Samurai when the bandits come over the hill towards the village. Um, when there's a shot where Yoda scratches his head, which is exactly the way that the Seven Samurai, the leader of the Samurai and Seven Samurai scratches his head. That's a direct call out. Why does Anakin have, or Obi-Wan, and then later Anakin have those weird braids and everything? It's just kind of bizarre. Well, the emphasis on hairstyle is important in samurai culture, and it's a callback to there. Oh, so is the whole sense of the Jedi Code. Why are the sudden Jedi celibate? Why is that now a thing? Well, he's trying to reassert the whole Jedi Code. The slower pacing is something that makes sense with he's trying to do a Kurosawa movie. And even things like the taxation storyline makes a kind of sense when you look at it as being an heir to a samurai movie. In other words, samurai set in this era of Japan where there really isn't emperor. There's a bunch of feuding warlords. Uh, there's villages that are just kind of on their own. And so you have uh, a lot of different plots where you have big bad warlord or business or whoever taking on the villagers, setting up a blockade, if you will, over some kind of financial agreement and trying to starve them that way. I look at that opening scrawl of The Phantom Menace, which is so horribly written and so out of step with what we wanted of Star Wars as an attempt to do a samurai movie plot. Wow. Even Jar Jar Binks is a callback to, Lucas has said, Goofy, Disney, one of his big influences too, but also kind of Goofy, you know, comic relief characters in different samurai movies. Jar Jar Binks, horribly done, but you can see what he's trying to do there. That's interesting. And it fails miserably. Is it, you're making me actually want to check out these samurai movies I've never seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so the aftermath, yes, it makes a ton of money again. Again, George is a genius at making money and merchandising. But he fails where he wants to fail. Again, no, audiences no, fails where get, he wants to. Or he fails where he wants to succeed. Again, audiences don't get it. Again, the connection's not made to samurai movies. Again, uh, he's not praised as this great director. He's now, in fact, being praised or criticized as the man who ruined Star Wars. Which you got to wonder, how does that make you feel when you created this right. thing, and now people are saying you're ruining this thing that you made? Yes. Um, and then I think with Attack of the Clones, Return of the Revenge of the Sith. You see a bit of a return to, you see the same shift to cynical, frustrated George Lucas that you saw between Empire and Jedi that Kurtz describes in that interview that we talked about. In other words, now we get into why does Amidala change her or Padme change her costume 15,000 times in Attack of the Clones to sell more toys. And so we get a return to what does George Lucas do when he's been rebuffed by the fans or feels that frustration? He reverts to marketing George Lucas, who goes and makes a bunch of money and um, we throw a ton more CGI into Attack of the Clones and there's a lot less subtlety or attempts at subtlety. Again, subtlety doesn't mean a good thing in this case because Phantom Men is very poorly done, but you can see in a sense where he's like, fine, you just want to see people shoot each other. We're just going to have people shoot each other. And, and you can see this almost more frustrated, cynical Lucas coming forward in there. Uh, dumbed down story, all that stuff. Okay, post-prequels. 
George Lucas has always had this line then where I'm just going to retire and make smaller personal stories. Mm-hmm. And I almost think you can make a connection to Coppola's career there. And that Coppola, you know, did all these big movies in the seventies and eighties. And he's done a bunch of small stuff that nobody's seen and nobody's particularly liked outside of himself. Uh, I haven't seen them, but the reviews on his, he does a movie every few years and they're generally very poorly reviewed. Uh, but he keeps making them. Why? Cause he's doing these smaller personal stories. Uh, even there, Lucas isn't able to have that same success. Yeah, why isn't he doing anything? Uh, he Well, he's done Red Tails, where he didn't direct it, but he wrote it, and then he did this strange magic, and whereas Coppola's stuff is criticized in the kind of where, oh, there goes that guy is just doing weird, boring stuff that we don't care about, the response more to Red Tails and Strange Magic, which I haven't seen either one, but you read the critical reviews, it's just, this is really dumb. <laughs> whereas... Coppola, what, ca- what is Red Tails? It's a World War II Tuskegee Airmen. And then what's, what's it's a Strange Magic? Animated musical. Strange Magic is an animated musical? Yeah. Wow. And so with Coppola, and I, in my opinion, if you read between the lines on the reviews, the sense you get with those is that he's just so pedantic and highbrow, and he's just doing his own thing, and it's boring, and we don't care. With George Lucas, it's just what a joke this guy is. Very different reactions when you're doing your small personal films. Okay, last last thing here. I know we're a little bit long, no, but I'm fine. Okay, last I, thing. I, I, to, just, I just want to say I'm loving this. Okay, this is really interesting. The sale to Disney. This is where we start to bring it to the modern day. But, you know, I do. I, I sorry, I want to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you take a drink of water. Let me ask this question. I thought that George Lucas was somehow involved with Indiana Jones. But yeah, he was the writer. On the the first one. How come we haven't brought that up at all? That- um, I thought about it. I cut it out just for time. I mean, I, I think that if we were get get into that, it's your reaction. What you just said is exactly why it's maybe another source of that frustration. I thought George Lucas was involved in Indiana yeah. Jones because who is involved in Indiana Jones? Steven Spielberg. Those uh, are Steven Spielberg movies. Well, maybe if you do have some thoughts on that, I'm going to be watching these movies soon because I've never seen Last Crusade and I've never seen. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So I thought, I'll just watch them all. Oh, yeah. There's only four. Wait. Yeah. Four. Yeah, there's four. Uh, you have them, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm supposed to bring them to you. Yeah, bring I them to me. I have the first three. I don't have Crystal So maybe Skull. we'll just do a, you know, overall Indiana Jones episode that just covers all four movies. I like it. I'd like to hear your thoughts yeah, on George Lucas Yeah, we can come stuff. back to George Lucas's involvement. Okay, cool. Okay, so the sale to Disney. Now, we know that there's been, George Lucas has mold or attempted to do more star wars after the prequels there's the live action tv series he has the scripts for the sequels that we eventually came out that those existed in some form whether they were full scripts or more story treatments isn't entirely clear to me uh but he's developing this and he decides i'm not going to do it um he doesn't want to jump into that director's chair again for any number of reasons so he's going to sell to disney why disney though i think that that's an interesting question to look at. Well, Lucas actually is this long in admiration for Disney that goes back to his childhood with Disney being what it is back in the fifties and sixties. And, um, I, I think that it's not a stretch to say that you look at all these influences he's bringing to the table, uh, that Disney for him was part of this grand cinematic tradition. 
that he wanted Star Wars to be a part of. Um, I'll leave my own Disney prejudices, prejudices at the door, but suffice to say that Disney is very important cinematically in the 50s, 60s, when Walt Disney's doing his thing, when Walt's still alive and in control and everything, and that's the Disney that George Lucas fell in love with. And so I don't think it's much of a stretch, especially given his later reactions to it, which we'll get into in just a second, to say that Maybe George Lucas thought he was selling Star Wars to the company that was part of what he wanted Star Wars to be about all along, this great cinematic tradition. Now I'm going to give it to uh, Disney. Kind of like if he'd sold it, if Kurosawa was still alive and had $4 billion <laughs> laying around, which he didn't, and you know, bought it from, from Lucas. There's a sense of that, yeah, I'm selling it to this thing that I always wanted it to be a part of. Mm-hmm. But the reality of modern Disney is not that again for better or worse i'll leave my prejudices aside but modern disney is part of the pop culture tradition which is not part of the grand cinematic tradition that lucas wanted star wars to be a part of but is part of the pop culture tradition that star wars created he's essentially selling it to the same thing that he created it in and they don't want his ideas. They don't want to do what he did. It's no surprise to anybody that Lucas's scripts or treatments or whatever they were, his ideas get thrown out the window and any sense of him being a creative consultant is gone. And this is where we get into just a few months ago coming off of The Force Awakens. Uh, and you get that famous Charlie Rose interview where he, you know, everybody's up in arms because he, he described selling uh, Star Wars to Disney as being like the white slavers or <laughs> selling his children to the white slavers. Not a good comment, poorly put. But let's, I mean, just think about it for a second. He just watched The Force Awakens, which whether you like the movie or not, or in between like I am on it, it's certainly not the grand cinematic tradition that he wanted it to be. I mean, the movie is so reliant on Star Wars. It's self-referential only. It's not pulling in any of that stuff that he always was trying to pull in. And I think that that was a major wake-up call to him and not in a good way. Like I think he started to realize, I think I made a mistake. I think he, yes. I, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious from the Charlie Rose interview that he, there is serious buyer or seller's remorse in this in this mm. case going on with his sale to Disney and there's a sense of what have I done? I I lost my last chance to actually have this thing be what I wanted it to be. Um and it's a very tragic end to his story because he's tried so long and so hard to get Star Wars to be this thing. And he fails and now has failed beyond the possibility of ever having it be that. Uh, but I still think that calling this episode the Redemption of George Lucas matter or is a good title because, in my mind, George Lucas is a much more complex uh, director and cinematic force than I think we have given him credit in the past. That doesn't mean that the prequels are good. They are not good. It doesn't mean that Empire Strikes Back uh, isn't the best movie in the franchise. It is. Um, and it doesn't mean that Star Wars would have necessarily been better if, if Lucas had been able to not have those health issues and keep um, things going You know, in his own vision. Uh, very likely it would have been worse. I mean, maybe the, the flaws of Lucas's storytelling ability would have shown a whole lot sooner than The Phantom Menace. Uh, we might not have gotten The Empire Strikes Back. So this isn't me saying, if only. 
But I think that it's important to understand that I think that is what Lucas says to himself. Uh, I think that he's a guy where, on the one hand, it's very sorry to feel sorry for him as a you know, to reuse, uh, recycle a joke from a few weeks ago, he can wipe his tears with $100 bills. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I do feel sorry for him because I think that he wanted to do a very good thing but didn't have the talent or ability to do it. Uh, so the redemption of George Lucas is not that he's secretly a great filmmaker, but that I think he is a better, had better intentions than we've given him credit for. Uh, and maybe it's worth going and exploring some of those uh, influences to see what he was trying to do. That'll certainly help you appreciate Star Wars more. I think that's my big takeaway from this episode is that I'd love to go and see those, and I'm sure you have a bunch of them. Oh, home, yeah. A lot of those old samurai movies so I could see the influence, but also maybe just experience that genre that I've never really experienced before. Yeah. Like, let's set Star Wars aside. There is a great thing here that I've never seen any right. part of. And, yeah. and maybe, and so then in that sense, it's even more the redemption of George Lucas because as more people become aware of what you're saying right now, people like myself are going to go out there and seek out what he always wanted people to seek out. Exactly. Exactly. So that's it. That's what I got for, for everyone today. My alternate reading of George Lucas's life and career. I love it, Ben. Thank you very much for putting that together. You are welcome, sir. Well, yeah, listeners, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Feel free to write us at feedback at the sci-fi-christian.com or call us at 612-4121-SFC. Well, that is all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiBono. We are the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Uh, goodbye. and we're back and you know you listeners you just heard it you can see why this one's stuck with me but you know as i when i winner as i've been doing these our favorite episodes uh the series over the course of this 10-year anniversary year i i basically how i'm picking them is i'm just thinking which episodes have stuck with me which ones do i often think back on and this will be one so every 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 one of these is a home run so i know i always tell you this but great job well thank you i nailed it i'm gonna hit the music well, listeners, there it is. Another one of our favorite episodes. And it's been a while since we did uh, Best of the Best. So I think next week I'll have to do a Best of the Best episode. I think we're all the way to our eighth one. So, yeah, season eight. So we have to oh, make sure exciting. we finish that before the end of this year because I, I need to put them out by the end of November right. so that in December the listeners can vote on the best of the best, well, which is the point of the whole thing. We're going to have to do one like each week. Yep, we'll have to start for sure next week. I'm not prepared for it tonight, but we'll do it next week. Okay. Uh, so for now, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben Bono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Goodbye.